0: people are always late and always complain those people always think others are to blame your people think they should be the first in line those people always do the time people who Hey there, welcome. We're going to start off as we always do, and thank you out there for checking out this episode of Those People, a podcast about people with people. As usual, I'm your host, Mitch Gaines. You can find me at Mitch Gaines just about anywhere on the internet that I want to be found. If this is your first time checking out the show, thank you, thank you, thank you. We are so happy to have you here. Those People is a show about people, with people, where we explore all the labels that others give us and that we give ourselves. So every episode we sit down, different guests, we interview them about their stories, their successes, their struggles, all the important S words. But most importantly, we kick it with them about the people who are involved. So if you love it, we love you. To Go, go tell a friend. If you hate it, we hate you. And please kindly shut the fuck up forever. I'm just kidding about that last part, but if you do hate the show for real, please shoot me a note at mitchgaines at gmail.com. Tell me what you hated. We might be able to do a little bit better next time. As always, I also want to take a quick second to remind all of you who do love the show or just some of the people that we've had on the show, to please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. It really helps other people discover the show. Platforms we're currently on include Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, Pocket Cast, my favorite, Radio Public, and a whole bunch more. If you happen to be a Google or an Apple subscriber and you like the show, it'd mean a lot to us if you could rate and review the podcast, but only if you like the show. Say the hate takes for Twitter, where again, you can find me at Mitch Gaines, that's Gaines with a Y, because I'm a little bit gay, G-A-Y-N-S. I'm joined today on the show by Joshua Collins. He's a Democratic Socialist, heavy emphasis on the Socialist, who's running for Congress in Washington State's 10th District. Currently, Joshua is a full-time truck driver. He's conducting his campaign from both his home base in southwestern Washington, as well as from the road, uh, as he campaigns all across Washington for dramatic social change to improve the lives of the working class. He's for Medicare for All, he's for complete student debt forgiveness, he's for well- just about anything that helps working class people, and every once in a while some things that don't, but certainly annoy the shit out of folks on the other side of the political spectrum. So, in short, I might describe him as a step left of your favorite leftist, several steps away from being quite off the deep end, and if you've learned anything about listening to this show before, often my favorite people to get to know more about are exactly those kinds of people. So without any more introduction, let's welcome Washington's favorite capitalist-hating, truck-driving, gay-agenda-loving socialist, Josh Collins. (laughs) <laughs> welcome to the oh show Josh.
1: howdy thanks for
0: having me uh I guess quick question to get started off here is it Josh or Joshua I don't want to be an asshole here uh I usually go by Joshua, yeah. Joshua, okay, got it, sorry. Uh, I tend, I have a really bad habit of shortening people's names and like giving people nicknames when I don't actually know them and I don't know if that's just from like growing up a hip-hop fan or what, but like everybody gets a nickname in my book and I'm like, eh, some people might not like that. Somebody else might call them that. I should probably like check that with people. Uh, in that yeah. same vein, we uh, we start every episode here by doing the same thing with every guest and that is we ask for a conversational safe word. So the way that works is very similar to a sexual safe word. You say this word anytime things get really uncomfortable, you don't like what the conversation is going i didn't ask uh, enough kind of preamble to set that up in a way that you feel comfortable with you say that word we stop right away just like sexual safe word if you need to invoke that safe word like 20 times in the course of the next like hour and 15 minutes we should probably just stop you know go back to not talking to each other for a while and like readdress this at another point uh so that said what is your conversational safe word Uh, i don't know um (laughs) Banana. I love that. Banana. Okay. I i will tell All you right. that, that no fruit <laughs> fruits are fruits are very common. I got a, a couple of pineapples. I think somebody went with apple earlier in the season. Uh so banana's right on right on par. I, the phallic reference is not lost on me though. I like it. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I just ate one,
1: that's
0: why. Perfect well, on my desk. You, so. Gotta gotta stay uh gotta stay fueled up while you're on the road, I would imagine. Right. Uh, so I guess that, that actually leads nicely to the first question I usually ask at the beginning of an actual interview, uh, which is where are you from? So obviously you're a truck driver and I feel like, you know, home for you tends to be a lot of different places depending on the day of the week. Uh, but where are you from kind of originally?
1: Well, like a lot of people in this country, I've um, I've lived kind of all over. Um, originally, I'm from southeast Kansas from a small town. Uh, I have lived there until I was 14. Um, I lived with uh, my dad and my stepmom. We were very poor, um, and it was also an abusive home. Um, and then, when I was 14, I my mom got custody of me um, over the child abuse. And then, um, shortly after, my childhood home was condemned and demolished. So, if you look it up on Google Maps, it's just a big empty lot. <laughs> um, and uh, quite,
0: quite the family photo to go back and have your memories with, huh?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have uh, I have two photos from my childhood, and that's about it. So, um, yeah, the uh, my mom is a nurse, and she uh, she lived in Las Vegas, and I went to high school there. Um, and after I graduated from high school, I had a job at a glass factory for a little while. Um, I, I was planning to go into the military um, to become, uh, like, you know, I was going to go into the Air Force and actually use the air force to pay for college. Um, but got in a car accident and that car accident messed up my body pretty badly. Um, I, I couldn't even do a push up after that. Um, so I was disqualified from joining the military and I had no way to pay for college. Um, and so after that, um, you know, I was working and trying to pay my way to go, you know, go to school part time. Um, and then my grandmother, uh, She was, you know, on her way out, she was dying. And I asked for time off of work to go and visit my grandmother. Um, This time was approved by my boss and she lived all the way in Virginia and I had no money for the flight, which was like hundreds of dollars uh, each way. Um, So I was going to have to drive. Um, It it was to the point that for just me and my wife to to go and see her, um, it was gonna cost over like well over a thousand dollars. Oh, easily, um, yeah.
0: That's, like you said, a couple hundred each way, two people that that's not even counting. Like where are you staying? What are you eating? What are you doing?
1: Uh, anyway, exactly. Yeah. So, so I, I, took my Honda civic and was driving there. I got halfway there. Um, and then my boss called me and told me if I didn't come back, I would lose my job. Now I knew that if I lose my job, I was screwed and I was going to end up homeless. I have eight siblings. My mom's not exactly rich. So, um, it, <laughs> You know, I I was pretty much on my own. I already had, you know, my own apartment and stuff like that. So um, my I had no choice but to turn around and start driving home. Um, And when I got halfway back um, towards Las Vegas, um, I got a call from my boss saying that I was being laid off. (laughs)
0: Wait, while while you're on your way back to work for this job that he told you, if you don't get back here, you're fired. You're like, all right, fine. Even though this is like cruel. And and then like midway back, he's just like, yeah, fuck it. Now I decided to fire you anyway. Yes.
1: Yeah. They laid me off. So (laughs) technically, you know, yeah. (laughs) They, uh, claimed that they, um, you know, didn't, that they were, you know, shutting down that section of the factory. Uh, they were just trying to, to find a reason to, you know, let me go and hire someone at a lower pay. Um, And that's what they did. They laid me off and I couldn't find another job that paid uh, nearly what that one did. Um, Couldn't for the life of me find a full-time job that paid more than 10 bucks an hour. Um, So my only choice was to become a truck driver. Um, And this is pretty standard for a lot of truck drivers. Um, Like the the whole process that, you know, you go through, it can take usually between three to um, three weeks to like three months, depending on, uh, you know, what school you go to and How much you pay, et cetera, and what pace you want to learn in that. Um, But then, you know, got my got that job. It was a decent-paying job. Um, I was already married. My wife, that she had worked at um, Macy's, um, and her plan was eventually go to school. But she, you know, decided, you know, if we both became truck drivers, we would make better money. So we both became truck drivers, and that was our only stable job that we could really, um, you know, get that paid a decent wage. So that's why i'm a truck driver my wife is a truck driver as well Hmm. um now we moved to fontana california for that short period and then we got a job in washington state that paid okay um that that's when we moved to washington when i was like 22 i think and um yeah, and this was around the uh, the
0: 2016 election. And- I, I want to back up uh, several steps there, because right. you gave me a lot. Uh, yeah, I, I guess sure. where where I want to go back to and start from is like, I one of my favorite parts about doing this show, uh, and I apologize because I mm-hmm. use that phrase entirely too often, so I'm probably going to use it eight more times during this interview, because uh, there's a lot of things <laughs> I like about doing this show. Uh, but one of my favorite parts is kind of give a, a better understanding of what like youth is like other places in the country uh, so it's one of those weird things where very few people you know no matter what your background is uh, hopefully you didn't have to move around too often as a kid and you know even when your situation is shitty as it sounds like yours was till about 14 mm-hmm. it's like most people spend a lot of those formative years in the same place and so nobody really has an understanding of what that those years are like anywhere else so what is that what is yeah. growing up in Kansas like I, I have no con like I know I think two people ever who grew up in Kansas one who moved when they were like seven uh so i don't what is what is kansas like what is the middle of the country like i'm just like another shitty coastal elitist
1: yeah sure um so southeast kansas um it's it's very it's very southern um compared to like northern kansas Mm. um you know it's close to like missouri and um you know you're you're pretty close to the south um and the uh you know, the accents are a bit thicker there. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it was, it was a small town that I lived in. Um, they had very few jobs. It was less than 10,000 people. Um, and, uh, I guess life there was pretty boring for most people and kind of, um, depressing most kids. They, uh, like, you know, I I remember in, you know, element, like starting in middle school, the common, um, you know, plan for everyone was I want to go to college and get out of here, you know, as soon as I, finish high school and that was you know basically everyone's goal and the people who end up still there they usually end up with low-paying jobs and just you know a lifetime of struggle um, and that is a result of a few things um, you know the uh, when jobs were shipped out of the country uh, because of NAFTA um, that screwed over a lot of small towns like that who would only have like a couple factories um, and you know it would vastly decreased the number of good union jobs in in those cities. Um, and so it's unlike the rest of the of the country, places like that, the populations are actually declining. So, <laughs> it was actually a, um, a merger of three different towns turning into one city, and then uh, it's called Chinook, Kansas. And they, um, they had an economy that was growing, and then when NAFTA came around, it just
0: it it. obviously you're running for office you're a fairly politically aware person i would imagine how how aware are you right so i was, was going to ask is like how aware yeah. are you of all these factors like when you're young because let me take a step back you said you're eight uh you're one of eight are, are all you living in kansas at this point or are some of your siblings with your mom some of you are with your your dad in kansas um at that point in time
1: i was with my dad my stepmom and my two older brothers
0: okay how be, yeah. how big's is the family then you guys sound like a, a massive bunch
1: Nine of us total, Um, three of of them are step siblings. And then then the uh, other six of us are uh, my mom's actual, um, what do you call them, Mm. like biological children, so
0: uh i always feel like guilty when i ask people this question especially people from big families because I, I remark on this podcast all the time i've i've a remarkably small family i've come to learn interviewing people uh <laughs> but like who who are you closest to like with your family like I, as all of this has grown up you'd mentioned you know it's an abusive household I, I most of my friends and most of the people i'm close to have come from abusive households and i understand kind of like part of the trauma of getting through that is you either like kind of throw yourself into something that you're building and you're creating or you throw yourself into like one or two or hopefully more than that if you have them, like close people around you and you kind of try to insulate yourself and build a system to like survive it until you can go do anything else. Uh, And so by by the sound of it, there isn't like a ton of shit you can throw yourself into in rural Kansas. Uh, So I'm guessing Uh, you're you're fairly close uh, with some of your siblings and like what, I guess what's your like circle like there? Um,
1: Well, I actually don't really keep in contact with much of my family in Kansas. Um, yeah, I imagine that by the sound of it. Yeah. Um, I haven't spoken to my dad in over 10 years and unfortunately the people who chose my side in that whole scenario, Hmm. um, you know, it, it basically ruined their relationship with my family. And, um, it was, it was a giant issue because basically no, no one knew that my, uh, my father was abusive. And so finding that out was a very, uh, what do you call it? Like divisive (laughs) event. Um, and, it, you know, basically made it so that, like, the cohesiveness of the family entirely kind of broke apart based on people who either believed it or didn't believe it, et cetera. So, um, and, but yeah, I guess the person I'm closest to, though, um, I would probably say would uh, be one of my younger sisters. So she's the closest in age to me as well. So.
0: And so um, I would, I imagine by the side of it, okay, like you, as soon as you can are getting out of there, you move to Vegas. And then are your, are your younger siblings, all, all sisters? Or do you have younger brothers too? I've,
1: I have a, a younger brother and two younger sisters uh. and they're, Probably the three that I'm
0: closest to. Yeah, and and so it's it's you guys living in Vegas, and so one of the things I'm always struck by is like men who are raised by women just turn out better. <laughs> like if you grew up in a house <laughs> with like three sisters and your mom, and like you just left your abusive dad, and like you have a brother who at, at least on some level like gets the shit that was happening. Like there's not a ton of toxic masculinity to like pick up from, uh, and you just yeah. like you avoid a lot of shitty habits. Uh, and so I mm. I guess what is do you have kind of like a culture shock moment later in life because like clearly you have, you know, a, a, from what you, you're tracking to me, like kind of a, a bravado masculine kind of track here. It's right? I want to go into the military. I don't get into the military. I'm going to go work in a factory. I'm going to become a truck driver. Like all of these things are like fairly like masculine things. Where is that? Mm-hmm. Is that like a backlash towards your dad? Or is that like something that was, you know, your mom or your sisters or your brother was kind of like instilling in you? Like, where's that come from?
1: Um, a lot of it, it's actually from my mom. My mom, really? okay. um, yeah. Her values are pretty similar to mine. Um, I wouldn't say she's very political, but, um, you know, sh- she's worked her entire life. She's been working class. Um, you know, her, uh, she, she was 13 when her, fa- when she had her first kids. So she's, you know, very, uh, used to, you know, working, uh, a lot of hours and, you know, working very hard. And she always taught me to just basically be nice to people, like regardless of what their job or their income was. Mm. Um, so. You know, she never like, you know, we never talked about it in terms of like these like, um, like socialist terms, but she understood that, you know, we need higher minimum wages. We need to fix the education system, you know, basically everything that I understand, um, you know, she's very pro-union um, as a nurse and um, she she became a nurse when she was in her thirties, um, her young, uh, like lower thirties. She's had a very interesting life, but she, you know taught me a lot of the ways like just the ways to act, like how to treat people and how to be, you know, towards people, and also like probably the biggest influence my mom had on me was just to stand up for myself. Um, you know, when I was a kid, I was very shy and quiet. Um, so, you know, very when my tough mom, time <laughs> <that>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: my
1: my mom is she's a very outspoken person, very charismatic, and she, um, you know, she basically, you know, got that out of me by. Just exposing me to it, taking me everywhere and, um, you know, basically throwing me into like social situations. She made me join sports teams and things like that. And then it kind of helped me uh, become more open and talkative and normal, I guess. uh,
0: Have you have you seen the film Lady Bird by chance came out a couple years ago? Nope. I, I just watched it for the first time recently. The reason I ask is because the, the mother in that film uh, is a, almost the exact archetype you're painting, where it, like, became a nurse a little later in life, like super hard-working, kind of like blue-collar, it takes place mm-hmm. uh, north uh, Sacramento, maybe? So like Pacific Northwest, like similar kind of like value system and it's like a lot of like weirdly tough love but like encouragement like go do all of the things and learn all of the things but like you know you're still yeah, one yeah. of us you're still working class like don't go out there and be like some shitty elitist like you know don't exactly. and, and like the whole the, the mother daughter struggle of the film is about her going to school at, you know oh, in New York or Yale or wherever the fuck uh, and it's like it, this real tension of like I thought I raised you better than this and by better than this I mean like you would ignore the bullshit and like go do something productive Uh and I think we're kind of missing that messaging now in this generation a little bit i i, I know i uh certainly like out, out here where i am like that is that is not the pervasive thought like the pervasive thought is like you know find find a way to get ahead and like everybody's cheating so figure out how to cheat the system for yourself that you can like sleep with at that night uh, that's a very very different way to like approach life uh obviously <laughs> that's fueling a lot of your political run i guess like when do you for for lack of a better term and i look forward to getting killed for this on twitter later but like when do you, like, get woke to all this shit? Like, how, like you said, like, your, your mom's kind of, like, schooling you on this as you grew up and, like, instilling good values in you, but it also sounds like there's a trick at some point, whether that's in, in factory life or later on, where you're kind of like, some things are really, like, wrong here. It isn't just like, hey, do the right thing, keep your head down, keep it moving, like, speak up, you know, for yourself and for others, and, like, everything will essentially play out. Like, th- there are forces that are, like, ensuring that this doesn't play out for people like us.
1: My, my beliefs, so a lot of socialists, I think this is actually a problem with the left, is they will get their views from, like, reading a book. Hmm. They'll get their, their socialist views from, like, you know, Marxist theory, like, books and and instead of like learning from like the real world. Right. Well, and and None these, of my these beliefs are the
0: Bernie me. bros that you hear about. Right. It's like the, the, the rich white elitist. Like I went off to college, I studied Marxist theory. I got like a, a master's degree in it. And now like I reject the world because I went to an Occupy rally. I appreciate the allyship, but like, fuck you, we don't need you here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Some
1: of the, some of those exist. Um, and I think, I think the problem, like, I think with any country, like the, the, any like leftist movement, um, to improve the conditions for workers has to come from workers. You know, it can't be from like, it can't necessarily always be from just people that are entirely made up of, you know, college educated people who learned everything they know out of a book.
0: A, produce, I mean, a when can't I talk be to academic a, in nature, yeah.
1: Exactly. And, and when, um when I uh, talk to another truck driver, I know what they're dealing with and I know their experiences and I know, like their sentiments before i even start a conversation with them and i don't approach them you know saying hey have you heard about socialism and Karl marx you know (laughs) i think that would you know and that is actually the way some people approach it and it's and it's very like it's it's ridiculous to be honest um the way you should approach someone is talking about like wages and like living conditions this is something i repeat all the time um everyone is tired their wages being too low Uh, of working very hard for a company that is soulless and doesn't give a shit about them and then they're they all understand like their you know their bills are too high their rent is too high um you know everything is just too expensive they never get time off they work too many hours and those are that's a common experience for a working class person in this country um and if you talk about that before you ever get to something like you know talking about you know Uh, All these things like means of production and, uh, you know, whatever, right? Um, Like, I think that's, like, where this has to start. You have to start a a conversation about, like, just educating people that, like, the system is flawed. And the way you feel about yourself, a lot of that is to do with the actual system. Because you can be working 60 hours a week in this country. You can be working nonstop. You can be very frugal with your money and still get screwed over, you can still end up homeless at that level. I mean, I nearly, it nearly happened to me myself. So, um, So, you know, a lot of truck drivers experience that where they are working 60 and 70 hours a week, but barely saving up any money. And that's just reality in this country.
0: So I'd, I've certainly heard this from from certain occupations and truck drivers are one of them. I I wonder I was curious because one of the other like very very common and now disappearing being automated and like unions are being attacked occupations that you also held was you worked as a factory worker and you mentioned working in a glass yes. factory. How how old are you then? 21, a teenager, right? Yeah. yeah. And so are yeah. you are you introduced to any of the like are you part of a union then are you introduced to like union is that rhetoric present in the factory lifestyle or is that you know, so dissuaded by like the upper management that like, that's not even really a possibility. So this is actually, a, uh, we've actually, I've,
1: I've personally been like shifting my focus in my campaign and my messaging to encourage people to unionize. A lot of people don't realize how many protections we still have to organize our workplaces. Um, the second you utter the word union to one of your coworkers, you cannot be fired for wanting to unionize it's illegal for your employer to fire you. And its um, you have a decent amount of protections. You have a federally protected right to discuss wages and conditions with your coworkers. It's federally protected, which means they cannot fire you over discussing that. Um, so I, I've been trying to um, let people know those two facts because they just don't know them. I, Most people think it's illegal to talk to your coworkers about their uh, their wages. They well, think you're not allowed to.
0: And I, I want to interject here just to say that, like, it, it has been my experience in a couple different like big box retailers and like other like larger corporate companies that. Like they think that because they put that directly in your training materials. Like you are told when you get that job, especially in a management role, that like if you talk to any lower level employee about their wages, about their position, about their hours, about the idea of unionization, and about their benefits, any of these sort of things, that you will be fired. Like that is like expressly told to you. Uh, so it's crazy that they're allowed to, they're allowed to threaten that essentially, but they're actually not allowed to do it. But they, they are allowed to like hover that over you.
1: Yes. Yeah. They, um, so they can't directly say that they'll fire you over it. They can't directly deter you from doing it, but they can, they they'll use like coded language and try to infer that something will happen. Um, and actually they will, they will retaliate against you. And if you don't like lawyer up, like they will get away with firing you over unionizing. we're seeing this today right now. If, um, if a Walmart employee talks about unionizing on, on Twitter, Mm. Walmart's watching their Twitter account already, and Walmart will fire them for whatever reason a few days later. It happens all the time, and I've I've personally like been communicating with people who got fired for talking about unionizing. But if they had said it to their coworkers, this is a very important thing. You have to you have to find one coworker that you trust, talk about unionizing, and at that point in time, you are in the process of unionizing, and you are federally protected from being fired over that. So it's, it's like a very, um, it's a very interesting process. Um, And you have to be very careful about it. Um, But it's like, we do have rights in this country still um, to, you know, organize against our our bosses. Um, And I think the important thing to do is just, you know, encourage people to try. Because in reality, like, unionization isn't just like stagnant in this country, it's actually declining. We're having less and less workers be unionized as time goes by. And some of the biggest companies are the biggest abusers of, you know, workers um like in general, right? So we have and Walmart, Walmart and Target, Amazon. and Amazon. Yeah. yeah. Those are the three biggest non union companies. They're very heavily anti union. They put out propaganda, they make you watch anti union videos when you start your job and even every few months as well. And we need to convey to people that like they can't fire you for saying you want to unionize. They just can't. It's illegal.
0: Uh, so the, the story, the story I mentioned earlier was one of those three. I just, I'm not, I'm not sure legally if I'm allowed to still say anything about that or not, cause I don't know how much time needs to pass. Uh, but yes, uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I'm, I'm guessing then, uh, your, your glass factory job probably was not unionized considering how you were let go from there. Uh, exactly. were, were there yeah. talks of that or was that kind of like, that wasn't even in your mind? You were just like, Hey, I need a job. Like, this is a good job. It pays decent money. Let me go get this job.
1: Yeah, I was, um, at the time, I didn't even understand unionization. Um, I didn't, I mean, I thought, okay, I get, you know, a decent pay and, you know, decent conditions. I actually, I I actually enjoyed the job as well, because I was working with, um, you know, screen printing on glass bottles and painting stuff. And, and it was very, um, like, it was actually a job that I enjoyed, but um, I didn't, I never thought that they would be able to just hi- like fire me for no good reason. Mm. And I couldn't do anything about it. Like I never considered that, you know, and a lot of people don't realize that that is the position you are in when you don't have a union, your boss can fire you just for whatever reason. They could just say, Hey, we, uh, we didn't want that position to be open anymore. And they'll just let you go. With a union, you know, you have solidarity with your coworkers. So if, um, if you are someone who's being let go over a, b- a bullshit reason, your coworkers can stand with you. You are already ready to organize. But if you're not unionized and that happens, you have very little recourse.
0: So I'm, I'm, I'm assuming your, your, your truck driving gig is not unionized, I'd imagine, yes?
1: Uh, no, I'm actually uh, an owner-operator. For the moment, okay, so that, I'm actually that, going to get rid of it, but
0: yeah. That's what I thought. I, most most truckers I know are owner operators, so I was curious. Uh, one of yeah. the one, one of the reasons I asked is because like you were you were clearly a staunchly pro union candidate. Most of the things that I, many of the things I agree with your campaign on, but like one of the the most the more obvious ones to me is the I guess the pressing for more union production and for more people and places to unionize. Uh, yes. One of the things I am I guess I'm, I'm curious about you in particular is, like, most people I know who are that pro-union, A, are, are part of a union and have been for a long time, and B, work in a profession that is, like, strongly part of their, like, core identity. You're 26, like, you've never worked in any profession long enough probably to have it be, like, a, a strong part of your core identity. You mentioned yourself, like, it, it's not like you, like, read it in some book somewhere. Who are all these people that you're talking to who are, like getting these thoughts started in your head? Because th- this is still a r- relatively young age. You're at, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. So where, wh- who are the people who you're kind of like surrounding yourself with? Like, who are the friends, who are like the mentors?
1: Um, you know, I, a lot of it's people online. Um, yeah. You know, I do watch a lot of, uh, I, lo- I watch a lot of political news shows on the internet. Um, and I have also talked to coworkers. I had a recent, I had a job a few months back before I bought my truck. Um, I didn't work there for that long, it was only like eight months, and I found out that they had used to be union, like, way before I ever worked there, and uh, they, were, they got away with a lot of um, abuses of the workers, and the conditions were incredibly poor for that job, um, and finding out that they used to be union, and, they, and at that point in time, they had, had better conditions and better pay um, relative to today, Um, was very eye-opening, because not only was I experiencing just really horrific conditions, it it was, so you might understand, like, how, like, Amazon conditions are, where it's not, it's not necessarily that they're being, like, you know, beaten, or that everything's unsafe, but it's, like, they're, they're forced to keep an efficiency that requires them to do things like skipping breaks, like, Um, like, skip bathroom breaks, and, like, that type of scenario. the horror stories
0: are crazy, where, like, you see people, like, coming in with, like, specialty, like, leg wear and stuff to make sure that they can, like, stand and move in, like, certain, like, awkward positions no human being should be doing repetitive. Like, all these, like, weird kind of contraptions, like you mentioned, skipping breaks, taking, like, uh, overtime that isn't paid overtime, like, there's a lot of kind of... I don't know if you term them abuses or malpractices or exactly what what the wording for them should be, but obviously mistreatment.
1: Uh, I guess mistreatment, yeah. yeah. I, I usually call it abuses and mistreatment. It's just treating people like they're machines. Yes,
0: exactly. Um, Which is the I mean, model the for a lot of, of larger companies now. It's like that. It, it is to roboticize the workforce until you can automate them away from it.
1: Exactly the job that I had. It was very physically demanding. Um, it was, you know, hand trucking things down a ramp into like, uh, subways and convenience stores and taco times and mm. pizza places, you know, it was delivering food product, which means it was, it was very little driving and a lot of physical, uh, movement. I was eating like a five, 6,000 calorie diet and still just, you know, staying really lean. Right. Jeez. So it was a very physically demanding job. And I was working 60, sometimes 70 hours per week. Um, and it was normal at this job for everyone to skip their lunches, and by that I mean just completely work through them. And in the trucking industry, that's actually illegal for a worker to do. Mm. You are um, you are subject to being fined hundreds of dollars, and the company's subject to like a like a you know five thousand dollar fine if their workers are skipping lunch breaks, um, like which are it's entirely to to make sure that you are not falling asleep at the wheel. It's it's a very important safety. Um, like
0: Did, I, I would imagine, it's similar to kind of how like how pilots can only spend X amount of hours in the air, kind of thing.
1: Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Um, and it it had become normal at that workplace for everyone to skip their lunch breaks. And when I started um, taking my lunch breaks that were legally required, um, people looked at it as weird. And like you were like um, a slacker. The, exactly. Yeah, and that's just the culture that they promote. Um, and I had to like slowly convince like one person after another that not only are you taking a risk with your career, um, but you're also taking a risk with your life by skipping those breaks mm-hmm. and not just taking thirty minutes to to you know sit down and rest and you know eat something. Um, and you know I started actually changing the way people like actually uh, looked at the job. And if I had stayed there longer, I likely would have helped them organize and unionize. But um, this is like something that you can do at any job. You know there are a lot of really poor conditions um that just get normalized and people are actually bothered by them they're just afraid to speak out against them because they feel like they'll look like they're lazy or that they're a whiner um but in reality you're not supposed to have your job as like your top priority in life you know like yeah sure work hard and do your job well and take pride in your work but at the same time it's like you know if you can't um if it's burning you out so hard and putting such a high burden on your on your body and on your mental health, etc. Then, how are you supposed to have a life outside of work? And that was that's very common for a lot of jobs like
0: that. Yeah, I, I guess I struggle. I go back and forth on that because, like you're you're right. the enti- The entire American ethos is that like your your job should be your number one priority. Should... Obviously, this is show, but identity. A lot of what we talk to people about is their life's work because so many people like center it as part of their identity. But the I guess the line I always draw personally is like you you shouldn't be putting that much effort into not effort but like you shouldn't be putting that much of your life in like your life's time and energy into any occupation in which you don't have some amount of equity and ownership and whether that's through union like some sort of union agreement and like a pension package or whether that's through like you having you know stock options in the company or you having started the business and outright owning the business like whichever method that is like good you know pick your path or whatever. But if you don't have ownership of the thing, then like, I I don't understand how any boss or any company can like, ask you to really go above and beyond. Like, you are paying me for the amount of time that I'm here to do the amount of things I told you I would do. Like beyond that, like you're either gonna need to pay me more, or you're gonna need to give me like some other benefit. And it seems to be if you ask for that, then you lose your job. And that's the part that seems out of sorts to me.
1: Exactly. We know for a fact that when workers are happier, they work harder, they're more productive, they produce, they, uh, you know, give better work, Um, they do better at their jobs, they are less likely to quit, they're more likely to um, fill in when there is a need, but when they are unhappy, you know, your company has to, you know, crack down and be very authoritarian just to get them to do the bare minimum. And that is very common. Um, You know, you can see it most obviously in somewhere like Walmart, where the workers, they're paid so poorly. If I were there and I were getting paid, you know, eight, eight, nine bucks an hour, to do such a, you know, a miserable job where i'm treated like garbage would i like would i even care about the you know <laughs> like, how well Walmart does on any given day, right. you
0: know? Like, like, why do I care if we sold $100,000 worth of stuff for $120,000 worth of stuff if I'm still making $8 an hour? And it's like, also, people think, like, when you work at, like, Target or Walmart, that I think the image in their head is like, oh, like, you move some, you know, you fold some t-shirts, you, like, ring some stuff out, and you, like, bag some stuff, and you call it day. It's like, no, there are a lot of people working at those places who, like, are unloading and un- loading trucks and, like, stockroom works and using, like, heavy machinery and all this stuff for, like, 12 bucks an hour and we work- working like 31 hours a, you know, a month or a week rather so that they can't collect benefits and all this crazy shit. And it's like, that, that just seems so crazy to me.
1: Exactly. So you're treated by, you're treated poorly by both your, your boss and by the employer and like the customers and you're expected to come here and do your best. And it's like, well, if, if, like, I can honestly say I'm a very hard worker and if I were in that situation, I wouldn't care about doing a great job. I just wouldn't, I would, I would not care at all.
0: And I guess the, the it jumps out at me because I I come from the opposite side of the spectrum, right? Because I I I did all of these kind of jobs in my youth where like I waited tables, I bartended, I mm-hmm. bar backed, I worked in retail, all of these things. But then as an adult, like later in life, I've only worked mostly in tech startups. And like it, mm-hmm. and, and, as the startup world goes, they tend to be you know data driven, ahead of the curve. So all these things about like treating workers correctly, all all that is very kind of like. in 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 fashion in these years that i'm in the tech industry so for like five straight jobs i had you know unlimited paid time off we had like mandatory like you know catered lunches on fridays or like company happy hours where everybody would get together and go do like a social outing twice a month like all these things are very like commonplace to my life and i'm just like do you guys have any idea how like the rest of the world lives like do you know how many friends i have who like can't get three paid days off and they've been working at a job for like nine years You know what I mean? And and it's just like, dude, I like I took two weeks off earlier this year from a company that I'd been working at for 14 months. You know what I mean? Like that's impossible to do. Uh,
1: You know what a lot of people do? They actually have to quit jobs and change jobs to take a decent vacation.
0: Right. And it's like, you have to like kind of map it out. It's like, okay, so if I, if I wait till January 1st, then my pay time off bank will refill. So if I quit in February, they have to pay me out for my time off. I can use that time off money to like, get me through the next four weeks while I line up another job. Once I get back from this vacation that I have to go to, because like my brother's having a kid, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Which is, yeah, exactly. it's not like you would like a, it's not so you can go to Tahiti, you know what I mean? It's so you can go to like fucking, you know, indiana or ohio or somewhere and go visit like your dying grandma or like your sister your uncle or whatever uh and that's the part that really blows my mind is like people people are forced to make all these life and death decisions just to like
1: uh, yeah exactly and i think i think the solution to that is actually workers unionizing and organizing um i think we need to have a more militant culture um where workers not just take pride in your work but value yourself as a worker and understand that the company needs you just as much, uh, if not more, than you need them.
0: I wholeheartedly agree with that. I terms like militant make me nervous because I'm a very passive person, but I I happen to agree in this case. Uh, I know we're- Mil-
1: militancy is not just it's not necessarily you know going to the company and like you know damaging it. It's it's more <laughs> yeah. about like if if they're going to do something like uh, you know cut people's wages or take away your health care or you know take your pension away, you go on strike. You tell them everyone. Everyone, you know, has solidarity with each other. You put your hand, your hands in your pockets, and you walk out. And so this is
0: that, that does. Oh, sorry, I'd, sorry I'd, I don't mean to cut you off here. I, I want to jump in because on the back half of this interview, I do want to get more into the campaign and everything. But one of the thing, one of your specific policies I wanted to talk with you about is this idea of unemployment wages for people who are part of a union that is striking. But how exactly does this work?
1: Well, um, so. I guess I'll start out with the fact that um, unions used to keep large, um, uh, like funds saved up, so when they went on strike, the workers would be taken care of. Exactly, like a war, um, a war chest situation.
0: They, before they start putting all of exactly. that into like advertising
1: lobbying. Yeah, exactly. Um, and these days, it's not so common. Um, a lot of times, the work, your work, your employer is actually the one in control of your pension, so you can't use your pension to go on strike. Um, I think we should. Do uh, we should actually, you know, go back to that and expand the unemployment benefits to striking workers, and that means um, just make it so that if you are striking against your employer, you file for unemployment it's the same as anyone else would, and you get, you know, X percent of uh, you. It's usually, you know, sixty plus percent of whatever your wage was, mm-hmm. and that way you can actually at least scrape by until uh your strike is successful and successful and the whole point of that is to say that we support workers in this country that we want we want you to feel empowered to stand up against uh abusive bosses and um employers that are uh you know not valuing you for what you are
0: i'm not saying that i believe this way but i just like thinking through that and when I guess the way I, I see my position in life is always to try and play devil's advocate with things so that I can make people's argument stronger. I, the natural argument I see to that is like, well, then aren't just a bunch of people going to, like, strike a couple times a year and take a vacation? Like, I, if everybody at the company gets together and like, hey, fuck it, you know what, we're taking September off and, like, we're you know, ev- everybody kind of rations their money so they, they can get by on 60% for a month and that's when everybody, you know, goes to weddings and funerals or whatever. Like, what's the, what's to prevent that from being the case?
1: Giving employees paid vacations. Uh, they wouldn't need to. Fair. Um, <laughs> and I, yeah, I mean, very You're simply, there's a, there's a burger a burger place in Portland that I'm a big fan of. They, um, they organize, they unionize, and it's just, it's a fast food restaurant like any other. And they came together and said, we want higher wages, we want paid vacations. Um, and the whole purpose of it is the, their employer tried to fire someone for being pregnant. Just- hmm. They got pregnant and they tried to let him go. Um, and that person, that woman would have lost her health care. She would have lost, uh, you know, the ability to, you know, take care of her child and get by. And, um, you know, the workers came together and said, we're not going to take that. And just recently, um, you know, months and months down the road, they went on strike for paid vacations and they won. They got the paid vacations and they just go back to work happily and continue doing their job the way they should be doing it. Um, and it's like, that's the the culture I think we need with a lot of workplaces. I mean, imagine how much better life would be for all of these people who, you know, many of them go decades without vacations because they can't afford it. If they could just take paid time off a few times a year when they need to. Um, I think that is a big part of getting a healthier work life balance in this country towards having healthier communities that are, you know, more, um, happy in general i think happiness is a very important thing to to worry about in our country and right now um if you are someone who doesn't take vacations who never who never has time to just breathe um you're very unhappy you're unlikely to be very active in your community you're you're unlikely to volunteer um your your family life will be worse i mean there are a lot of negative effects of not uh giving benefits to workers and that's why i think we need to demand things like paid vacations like you know paid sick leave and paid maternal leave and yeah you know, etc
0: you're uh, you're not gonna find a lot of pushback from me on that so i there are a couple other things i want to run through real quick before we get through the first half of this uh one of the things i don't get a chance to talk to a lot of people about uh and clearly you do this at a very young age i guess i'm just curious, like your wife is also a truck driver she seems very it seems like you guys are very aligned you speak of her very lovingly like how did you guys meet like when in when in this insane timeline of like moving across like five different states and changing jobs you know every year and a half or so and like a- abuse and people dying like where where did you find the time to like meet this woman and like how, how did this all come together okay well um we
1: actually went to high school together in las vegas um you married your high school sweetheart
0: we were- that's adorable Sort of.
1: Um <laughs> so I oh <Uh-oh. laughs> so she was actually um much taller than me. She was like five ten and I was uh I was too um like nervous to ever ask her out and then I shot up and, you know six feet tall and i asked her out <laughs> ever since then we, we got married so right after high school i shot up
0: wow wow i yeah. <laughs> on the one hand that's really adorable on the other hand i'm just like ladies can we can we please respect short men like there are good ones out there i'm sure joshua collins would have been a great man whether he was five five or six feet
1: yeah i feel pretty goofy about it now but you know <laughs> uh
0: a couple other i guess like lightning round things i want to run through real quick on the back half of this just fun things i like to ask everybody uh who was, or rather, what was your first vice or, like, bad habit that you had, and who introduced you to it?
1: Just in general in life?
0: Yeah.
1: Ah, video games. I used to play, uh, yeah, I used to play League of Legends, um, just nonstop.
0: Okay. Uh, I mean, there's yeah. th- there's no way to play League of Legends stopping. <laughs> you either yeah, exactly. need to play League or you don't. <laughs> All right.
1: That yeah, one me. of my friends at school actually showed it to me. After that, you know, I spent ten years just sinking so much time into that game was yeah. <laughs> now I don't play it though, so I I don't have time to anymore.
0: League uh, League of Congress is in your future. Don't worry. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. And the I I guess this is you you touched on this a little bit, but I'm always curious, like what was your decision on like going to college versus not going to college? Cause it sounds like you would originally want to go to college. You'd wanted to leverage the military path to get there. Uh, and it sounds like you've done quite all right for yourself, like not going to college and <laughs> figured out most of the things that I learned in college on your own and saved yourself 90 grand in the process. So what was that decision like for you?
1: Well, I was, I was going part time when I became a truck driver, like when I got laid off, mm. I became a trucker. Um, and I had to drop my classes and become a trucker. So, um, I never really looked back, just because I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of jobs that like pay decently, and people kind of discount the blue-collar industry. But there are a lot of really good jobs. Even if I wasn't a truck driver, I, I would be aware of a lot more jobs that um, you know have decent wages that I could do. Um, and my, you know, my wife is considering if um, if she doesn't uh, decide to run for office, she'll she's going to go to school and become a welder, which is a like a certification process. And, no. um you know that's type of thing she would do if um if she doesn't run for office which i'm hoping she will
0: uh, i just hope her name is not susan
1: oh no no <laughs> um <laughs> she's uh we actually have um, different last names oh, um, her name is uh, zelza Baez. So,
0: zelza Baez. Yeah. all right well uh, everybody in washington keep an eye out for zelza Baez, uh, <laughs> on a ballot coming to you soon hopefully uh Last couple ones so. uh, I want to wrap up with here on the front half, and then we'll dive a little deeper into the campaign uh, and kind of your entry into politics here on the second half. Uh, where, like, what is the nickname that you go by with like people that you're close to, and where did it come from? The nickname I don't really have any nicknames. Just go by Joshua. Really? Okay. Sorry. Yeah. All the time you're Joshua sounds very formal for like not like Jay to anybody, not JC anywhere, not like Joey nothing.
1: Mm, nope. I mean, some people call me Josh, but um, Joshua is pretty pretty
0: standard for me. All right. Anyone listening ho- at yeah. home who comes up with a good nickname for Joshua Collins, please let us know because uh, everybody deserves a good nickname. <laughs> uh, and the last one, I always give credit to It's The Real, which is a terrific podcast, my third favorite podcast, everybody's third favorite podcast. You should go and listen to it if you don't. Uh, they always ask, and I always love this question because you always get a good answer no matter who the person is or where they're from. Who is the most famous person you went to high school with or the person you m- most remember and you want to shut out? Either or.
1: Um. Well, I'm probably the most
0: famous. (laughs) 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 I mean that might be true. um... You got what, like twenty five (laughs) thousand followers? You running for office? Like you're from a town in Kansas? I've never heard of that. Very possible. You might be the most famous (laughs) alumni.
1: Yeah, maybe. Um. Well, one of the kids I went to middle school with, actually, he's um he's a line lineman for I think the Redskins or something.
0: Oh no Um, shit. Okay. Well, shout out to that guy. Uh, (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, I appreciate you doing this first half. I feel like we've gotten to know each other, and I know a lot more about, like, your backstory and kind of how we got to this point. Uh, So I want to take a quick break here. We're going to come back and jump a lot more into the political side of things in our second half segment that we call I Am One of Those People, and we'll be right back with more. gonna dive into the second half of our interview on one of those people uh, so obviously this entire second season here or might be the first season depends which order I release these I'm still working that out uh is going to be focused on political people uh Joshua Collins obviously is running for office and I guess I want to start by asking uh how did you decide to run for office like how did that come about
1: oh um well I was I knew I was gonna run for something after watching the Bernie Sanders campaign um I thought I was going to to something like a local office. Um, I wasn't really sure. Um then Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez happened. <laughs> um I watched her campaign from the very beginning. Um you know, I was really hopeful that she would win and when she did win, I uh you know, it, she said the same thing that Bernie Sanders did. Um if you are young and working class and progressive and you know, you're considering run for office, like do it. Just you know, take the leap and do it and just start early so Um, about that point in time, like very shortly after uh, the primary in my own state, uh, which was about a year ago, I decided I'm going to run and um, I started doing live streams on Facebook and posting, you know, on Instagram, more, more political stuff. And, um, and on Twitter about November, I started posting on there and then, um, you know, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez retweeted me a couple of times and suddenly I have had, you know. thousand followers on twitter so i decided to use that and um try and gain national attention in order to you know actually win my race and um and basically if i didn't get the traction that i did i wouldn't have run i would have dropped out Um, but because i did um and i was able to start fundraising from purely online without a lot of connections um you know i went all the way with it and filed and started raising actual money and there we are thirty-two thousand dollars over a thousand volunteers um, you know, over like almost 30 million impressions online from the things that I say every month. And, you know, it's just, it's been amazing. So,
0: so I, I'm curious, obviously this Sounds like you're obviously very inspired by the, the Sanders AOC kind of wing of the party. You very openly describe yourself as a democratic socialist, often, sometimes, it's just an outright socialist. What, like, where, when did you decide to kind of identify yourself that way? Where, was that from like the very start politically, from like day one, you're like, now, like, th- that's how I view myself? Or were you? I find that a lot of people on that wing of the party start out as independents of some sort and then eventually kind of find themselves in social.
1: Uh, yes, I was very, um, I didn't like the Democratic Party, I still have my issues with it. Um, and I called myself a social Democrat, um, because that is, it's very similar to a lot of the policies I hold. Um, but the difference between a social Democrat and a democratic socialist, um, it's about your ideology and, you know, where you think um, things should, uh, how far things should go. And I guess, you um, a social democrat does care about the uh, needs of corporations to some extent, and a democratic socialist says, you know, the only thing that matters is the people, it is the workers, and it is, you know, the um, the society as a whole, right? You know, I was an independent, and uh, I never thought I was running would run as a democrat, um, but running for Congress in my district, you have to. There's just no no other way to win. <laughs> so um,
0: that is, yeah. That's actually something I've asked pretty much every candidate I sat down with, because it sounds... And a lot of them, like yourself, are fairly left-winning. Bree Kidman, who I interviewed earlier this week, actually uh, is very much looking forward to your episode, so look forward to them hearing this. Uh, But one of the questions I always ask is, like, then like what what are the the forces at play that make that so because i'm i'm very much one of these people where it's like i i refuse to buy into either party because i i feel like i'm giving up too much to to be a member so i guess what leads you to feel like you had to join a party to be able to be relevant and there wasn't a way to run as an independent third party because i do feel like that's a big part of the problem with our system is like you there there are people joining both sides right and left who are joining the democratic and republican party who then like traditional democrats and Republicans look at them and go, well, you're not one of us, so you either need to conform to this party or you're going to be constantly fighting for your voice and your space in it. And I don't know how much better that is than fighting from a third party with, you know, less support perhaps.
1: Yeah, so, um, third parties in general aren't taken seriously, um, and they have a lot of the same flaws as, uh, the Democratic Party does. Um, you know, I've actually had, uh, Green Party members who have, um, you know, disavowed me just because I'm a, even though I'm farther left than them, I'm more progressive, I'm, um, you know, I'm better on the issues than, you know, in even most, you know, Green Party candidates, I've had a lot of people in the Green Party that simply because I'm running as a Democrat, they disavow me, they oppose me, they, you know, talk trash about me. And, you know, that's something that I just think is fundamental, is going to be, you know, common in any party. Um, in Washington State, um, we have uh, an, a jungle primary where it's everyone against everyone and the top two advance to the general.
0: Interesting, um, okay.
1: Yeah, so being a Democrat it is as easy as putting a D next to my name. Now, the difference between running as a Democrat and independent in the state is if you run as an independent, you're way less likely to even get consideration from the less uh, informed and less active voters. But when they see two Democrats, they actually look into you. Um, and that also means, uh, you know, running as a Democrat, I don't have to fight against the Democratic Party. Um, I got candidate services from the Thurston County Democrats, which is the second biggest county in my district. And that means and it was almost a unanimous vote in favor of me. Um, they have voted not to support the incumbent, And that is for the Democratic Party to do. That is amazing. And that also means I won't have to fight them. They'll actually support me instead, which... Uh, it was pretty helpful.
0: So <laughs> um, I, I want to ask yeah. about that because you mentioned that it's easier to fight when it's easier not to have to fight your own side, right? Uh, that being said, like, obviously, you know, you're running to primary and incumbent Democrat, clearly, like you're on some level fighting your own side. And like, clearly you have some issues with Denny Heck personally. So how did you decide to run for that seat in particular? And because you mentioned like you'd considered some other offices and how, how did you Mm -hmm. land on running for his seat? And like, what exactly is your problem with him and why do you want to replace him specifically?
1: Oh man, (laughs) where do I start? Um, (laughs) his. His biggest issue, the number one thing that is like the most disappointing for him, um, he was pushed on Medicare for All, an overwhelmingly large amount of his constituents, um, you know, signed petitions, came to his office, um, showed up at town halls, and they asked him in person. And um, he had an interaction with a friend of mine where he was asked if he would support Medicare for All. um, And... You know, he angrily grabbed her shoulders because she was being adamant and he said, I will never support me- Medicare for all. And, um, yeah, you know, that's his position. He's never going to support it. And there's no there's no pushing him. There's no night, you know, asking him and playing nice. The only way for our district to ever support Medicare for all is to get him out of office. It's the only option. Um, and that is the same with a lot of other issues. I have personally been in his office over the Green New Deal he does not support it he will not support it he has a financial interest that is against the green new deal um you know he takes money from you know every <laughs> every industry you can think of um, especially the financial industry who have a uh, vested interest in keeping um you know continuing to like develop and uh, invest in fossil fuels and so I, I don't think um i don't think there is a path with my district that doesn't involve getting him out
0: of office. I feel bad asking candidates this because it's, it feels reductive on some level, but like you're obviously not going to be able to get everything that you want done, right? Like we're, we're not going to, in your two year term, solve racial justice, also get labor rights, also get rural broadband and figure out the green new deal and like clean energy. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of things on your agenda. So when it comes to like prioritization, I, less about like what issues do you prioritize but more about like how do you make those decisions like who who are you listening to how do you make that decision Up you know if if you know there's only really realistically maybe five maybe less than that issues you can really address in a term while you're there like how are you how do you how do you decide what comes first and what's the highest rated for you or is that kind of kind of be dictated by the coalition once you're in office
1: i disagree i don't think you can only focus on a couple things um I think one important thing to remember is just like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, I will not be spending you know eighty percent of my day fundraising, mm. um, just like I am not now. Um, all of my fundraising is coming from online donations, um, and you know we've outraised most grassroots candidates in the country. Um, while I'm in office, that will be the same. I'll be able to commit all of my time, all of my effort to. Uh, you know, fighting for the issues that you know I I'm being sent there for. On top of that, um, you know, the most the biggest thing about getting one of us into office, right, uh, a progressive who is you know willing to fight for everyone, is that instead of using my platform to try and calm down the base and tell people you know uh, what can't be done, I'm going to you know push people and help you know get the movement going, right this isn't about me getting elected entirely it's also about getting other people to understand like if you're just a regular high school educated person who you know doesn't have a lot of connections you can do the same thing um and if you are a worker who you know is tired of your boss you can organize against them i will use my voice to support you um if you are someone who is trying to shut down a concentration camp in your district um you know, I will support you and use my platform for that. Whereas my opponent, when he is in office, you know, he's silent on 99% of the issues that we care about. And so he doesn't bring attention to them. He doesn't give a platform to people who really need to um, have their voices heard. He doesn't, doesn't do any of that. So it's, um, I think that's an important thing to remember. We're completely different from uh, a traditional politician when we get
0: into office. So I understand that part, but you still run into the issue of like, so you want to hear and listen to and like be able to respect and help as many working class people as you can, but those problems yeah. are all different. Right. So like if day one in office, like you, you know, you have an issue where you have a, a community and you know, one County that you represent that is going through an officer involved shooting. And there are all sorts of racial dynamics at play, but you also have, you know, an, an elder community, two towns over that mm-hmm. has got people dying by the day. Cause they can't afford medicine. Like, how do you figure mm-hmm. out, like, how do you allocate resources? Like, how do you make that, I guess like th- that's more of my questions. Like, what is your like prioritization okay. method?
1: Um, just working really hard so that you can do all of the above. It's very similar to what Bernie Sanders does. Um, you know that that man is everywhere. He is all over the place, and um, you know even like Elizabeth Warren, she's she's very similar. Um, and a couple other of the candidates where they are constantly, you know, helping people, bringing attention to things, and you know actually helping people solve the the problems that they're dealing with. Um, my top issue, though, I'm, I'm very clear about this, is climate change. I think it's the most important issue because without addressing that, um, there is no other uh, issue to deal with because we'll all be dead. <laughs> so,
0: yeah. Uh, I guess th- this is mostly an aside, but I, I should ask you because at least you live there. Uh, what are your sure. thoughts on Jay Inslee? Obviously, he's a Washington guy. He kind of leads the charge on climate change, uh, but also that, like there are a lot of pushback from people who don't like him necessarily, and like find him to be a bit of a huckster, and like a bunch of other criticisms I see. And like I don't know much about Jay Inslee. I care about the planet. I I want him you know, in, in the running. So we can at least have that front and center in the conversation. But beyond that, I don't really know yeah. much about him. Uh, how, how much does he kind of like impact your views on climate change or like, what do you think of him kind of as a, as a local politician? Cause obviously he served in Washington a few mm-hmm. times.
1: Yeah. Um, he was also in Congress as well before he became the governor. Um, yeah. but he, uh, so oh, in Eastern Washington, I guess I'll yeah. explain this. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's, he's one of the most progressive governors in the country um he as far as um politicians in washington state he's on the left um you know he won't endorse my opponent my opponent is significantly to the right of james lee um he's the type of person that if he were if he were my congressional representative i feel like we could push him on issues um and you know he would be uh responsive to you know people actually uh, lobbying for things like action on climate change um i really respect what he's doing with climate change, I don't think it's a winning strategy. I think it's uh, a good thing for him to do if he just wants to bring attention to climate change. But if you actually want to win a win a presidential race, you have to bring attention to all the issues. And his, you know, policy on on uh, climate change is pretty good. I mean, I would, of course, go farther left than he would, but um, it's. Um, so I, I guess my my I don't really have any complaints about him because what he is doing is. Uh, you
0: know, a noble cause. That's fair. I, I, I mostly view it the same from the outside. I agree with you. I, yeah. I don't think it's how you win the presidency, but I also think it is how you make whoever does win the presidency pay attention to climate change uh, and possibly exactly. get yourself a job running some sort of special counsel or something. So uh, I think yeah. that's good for him. Uh, I guess I have i have two more hard-hitting political-ish things I want to talk to you about. Uh, and a couple quick things and we'll get you out of here. But one of the things you just okay. brought up there, uh, which is very near and dear to my heart as a, as a self-described centrist, you are very far left on the political spectrum, very proudly so. Uh, yes. I I very much believe uh, in a lot of those ideas and those visions. Uh, I guess my view on it is it is good to have people you know, and roles throughout politics, I guess I can say more generally, that push the furthest left agenda possible so that we end up with actual change that comes more center left. You seem more adverse to that compromise, and I can't tell if that's like deep to your core or if that's more for the sake of having the arguments be genuine so that we can make as much progress as possible so when it comes to something like say student loan debt forgiveness right there are people who Mm -hmm. like, the far left position is forgive all student loan debt period i yes as someone with plenty of student loan debt plenty of friends who have student loan debt plenty of people who have degrees who they can't do anything with mostly agree okay cool i'm on board with that there are people who are in the center maybe even center right who are on the democratic party, all that shit. Where do you, like, are you okay with some level of incrementalism or does it have to be, we forgive everything? Like, is something like Yang's plan, like the 10 by 10 plan. Is that acceptable to you as like, we've made mm-hmm. enough compromise. There's no point arguing this point anymore. Let's take this and move on to, you know, criminal justice reform or climate or wherever else the, the next topic that we can tackle is, is like, is there a point of compromise for you? Or is, does, does it have to come as far left as you are before you would vote on something?
1: Uh, well, I guess the number one thing I'll say is I don't I will never negotiate anything before I uh, even start the negotiations. Um, yeah, it's like wanting to buy a car and you offer to pay more before you even go to buy it. You know,
0: it's um, and so no, I hear that argument. I I hear often. I guess I'm saying, okay, so we're in the negotiation now. Like a, a negotiation is on the table. It's eighty-five percent of what you want. Are you take? Are you willing to take you know 95 percent 90, on things, or are you like staunchly like hardline? Like I'm not. I'm not coming more than an inch or two, because
1: that it depends th- what it is. Um, I don't believe in ever supporting poison pills. Um, it, I will never support any military budget that is not drawing back the entire military uh, presence of our of our country outside of our country um you know I, w- I wouldn't support us continuing uh, you know growing our our war effort. Um, when it comes to something like uh, like student debt if there was a plan that reduces it um, or like let's say like if there was a plan that I could support you know I wouldn't I wouldn't vote against something that like is progressive um just because it's not enough. Um, but if it is something that would do harm uh, in, in its existence, then I wouldn't support it. So there's a lot of things like that. Um, I do not like the Affordable Care Act. I'm. Uh, I think that's something I've been very critical of um, because it did. Um, it it basically gave um, you know a lot of people a reason to completely distrust the Democratic Party. I think it was very damaging to the reputation of the Democratic Party and made people generally not trust the Democrats with healthcare at all. Um and I so that things like that where it's um like if we are helping some people and then screwing over others in order to get something done, I don't I don't believe in things like that. Um but if we are going to just genuinely just have a progressive uh policy task, you know, those are things I would support. Um in general, you know, something like I guess this is what socialism is, right? It socialism isn't necessarily everything is hard line left, but, um, you want to always be pushing things to the left. You want to get a higher minimum wage. Obviously you don't want to stagnate the minimum wage. Um, you know, you want to do things like get people, uh, better healthcare, better education and, you know, uh, things like rent control and get, you know, start housing people, et cetera. So, um,
0: so, I think, so I think a lot
1: of it's about strategy. Um, you don't ask for crumbs. Um, you ask for the full load, you know?
0: No, I mean, that makes sense to me. It's like you you ask for the whole, full loaf. You refuse to take crumbs, but if somebody's gonna no. give you nine slices out of a loaf of bread that has ten, then take the fucking nine slices, right? And it's like it, yeah. it, you know, you don't compromise in a way that's going to harm people. But if it like if it helps twenty million people instead of twenty one million people, then like let's help twenty million people and figure out how to use those twenty million people to help the last million. And I, I think exactly. that's, that's kind of the pragmatic way to look at it. I I think the worry is a lot of people who are on that far left edge, uh, and you know, you see this of the aoc fan crowd or the bernie supporting crowd like the people who are on that edge who aren't necessarily as involved politically but like support those type of candidates have these hard line mm. views where they're like well you know anyone who compromises on say student loan debt or some other version that isn't medicare for all or whatever right is now mm. like they're they're poisonous they're they're a shill they're a sellout like we can never vote for them again and where so yeah. much of your support comes from that base i i worry like is that a real concern of yours like can you can you afford mm-hmm. to compromise or do you lose votes on things like
1: that um so people understand how politics works in general um but they many, do not want someone don't. to ever i think that's my yeah. point
0: like a lot of people don't
1: <laughs> well i guess i guess let me explain this um if you if you compromise um from something that was already a weak ask mm-hmm. then people are going to be mad if you are asked like right now or the minimum wage is seven dollars and 25 cents an hour if your policy is $9 an hour and you get an $8.25 an hour minimum wage increase the <laughs> only make increase for the next. Yeah. It's nothing. People are going to be mad. They're going to be like, this is, this is centrist bullshit. It's, it's stupid. It's pointless. And you're a bad politician for even like wasting time on that. But if you are someone who is demanding a $20 minimum wage and you achieve $15 for 1250, uh, federally, like people will actually give you credit for that. They'll be like, well, he tried and eh, he tried for this and he got this. Like that is, the way people view things. I mean, um, and that's the same thing with a lot of stuff. With um, the Affordable Care Act, Obama wasn't asking for single payer. He had, he had campaigned on single payer, but he was asking for uh, a public option. And then he gave up a public option. He just completely negotiated that away. And he decided some people are just going to get screwed over under the system. And uh, we're going to meet a middle ground with the people who um, want to preserve the private insurance companies. Um, and something like that, I think is politically stupid. I don't know what else to call it. I always say this, it, it pitted the needs of the, the poorest people who, you know, were able to qualify for Medicaid, um, against the people who were, you know, lower middle class who, you know, either had to choose between a fine or really expensive, but useless health insurance. So something like that, like loses you support permanently. It's very hard to get those voters back on your side. Um, and you couldn't get doctors, you couldn't get coverage, you're um, your co-pays and deductibles are very high. Um, what are insurance the
0: chances,
1: <laughs> you know, exactly right. Um, and you're, how are you supposed to trust someone who's not going to say, Hey, we're going to completely reform the system, you know, um, and give you guaranteed insurance with no copays and no deductibles. Right. So that is the issue. I think with Medicare for all, you cannot, you can't try to give lip service to the health insurance companies and say, we're going to, preserve them while also giving you health insurance people just don't trust you i don't think you're it's a winning strategy like electorally i don't think it's a winning strategy um you know legislatively um and i think in general you know you should demand more demand a better system that is actually what people want right you should you should at least demand you know what you what your goal is you know
0: I would largely agree with that. Uh, my my last, I guess, politically-based question for you here uh, is something you touched on a few times throughout this, so I wanted to loop back to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I guess this ties in nicely with what we were just talking about as far as, like, how you either grow or lose support. A lot of your supporters so far, like, you have a, a large national Uh, not like you know you're not a celebrity but like you have a large national following you have a lot of national support uh how did how did you know obviously you're running for a relatively localized race obviously in a on a a state rep seat and so like how do you how's that balance for you like do you do you have the same kind of recognition in washington that you do say like you know on the internet or across the country the, the hype is real but like do you feel that at home at all like do you have that same hype back in washington
1: right um so I guess I'll explain it this way. Um, we have well over a thousand volunteers, um, and you know, hundreds of them are in districts, um, and that's people who are particularly active. And then we also have people who will show up on a moment's notice just by getting an email. Um, that is all just from online. Um, you know, we very soon we're going to ramp up the campaign, but at the moment, um, you know, we are fundraising from people all over the country and the majority of our donations do come from in state as well um like the most common state is is washington for our donations but um when i do show up in person to a political thing it is helpful that people already uh know who i am they already know what i'm about so i don't have to go through that entire explanation um and especially and, at the of
0: time right like if you only have 10 minutes to talk it's nice that you don't have to waste five minutes of them being like hey here's who i am
1: exactly yeah I did um I, I did something with the Democratic Party and I had never been to any of their meetings before um, but most of the crowd was already following me mm. so they had already told each other about me and they already so basically everyone in the crowd already knew what I was about so when I came up and gave a speech um, and asked for their support they voted almost unanimously not because the speech was amazing but because they knew that I was uh, you know staunchly progressive they knew I was genuine and um you know grassroots funded etc so that's that's kind of how it's materialized in the real world when um when i need to you know access something somewhere usually have some sort of connection that i've gained from online uh in the real world and you know i understand that um you know i'm not going to get a bunch of votes from uh you know campaigning online (laughs) but i will get volunteers and money which is you know very necessary for a campaign like this
0: i would agree uh, we'll, we'll run down some of the, the last questions here, uh, they're a a little lighter, a little looser for you, when did you know, like, this was for real, like, I made it, this is what I'm about now, like, this is a movement, this is something, like, I, this is gonna be part of my legacy, for better or for worse, this is gonna be a big part of my life, like, when did that click for you, because you had mentioned, there were a point where you were like, hey, like, this isn't even really for real, like, I'm probably gonna drop out if this doesn't, like, you know, go super well pretty early on, so, like, what was that moment where you're like, oh, shit, like, okay, like, let me ramp up the campaign. Let me go figure out like the rest of my life. Like there's a good chance the next couple of years of my life are going to be spent in DC and like doing other things.
1: Um, you know, uh, I had a very loyal following on Facebook, um, for the last year. Um, when I got on Twitter and passed my following from Facebook on Twitter within a couple months, um, and then I filed for my election. You know, actually, that was it. When I filed for my election, and people actually donated. I was quite frankly shocked. <laughs> um, yeah, my my first month, you know, we raised like fourteen thousand dollars and we've uh, so it was a very quick uh, burst of a lot of donations. So, uh, you know, when we started taking volunteer signups and people started signing up, there was uh, that was that was it. I mean, it's just people actually taking interest. Um, I, I know what it's like to ask for help with something and get people to believe in you and you can't really make convince them and whatever i did it struck the chord and you know people signed up and donated the way they uh need to in order for me to win um so that that was the moment yeah basically (laughs) back in march so i think that was a very eye-opening moment people were interested in the uh, a socialist truck driver with, um, far left policies, I guess. So. It's
0: definitely a headline that will catch your attention. That's for sure. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> let me, uh, Sorry. let me ask you this. Who, who have you met? Cause obviously this is a show about people. Like who have you met doing this? That's really like changed your life. Like during this process where you're like, Hey, like I knew this was going to be cool. I was going to meet a lot of people. I was going to do, you know, I was going to talk to a bunch of people, push a bunch of things, but like, is there one person that you've met kind of throughout this process that's, you know, really stuck with you and been like, Oh, like this changed the way I'm seeing this.
1: Um, yeah. Pauline Jean Spurgeon. Okay.
0: Engine. Yeah. She's, um, she is
1: a candidate in West Virginia. She was in that, uh, documentary on Netflix, knocked down the house. That's it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, she, she was on my Facebook friends. Um, and she just started giving me advice and, um, you know, telling me things not to do because people give you a lot of bad advice. Um, <laughs> and you know, she basically told me to stay myself. Don't tailor my messaging to what other people are telling me not to say, you know, say what I think and just be honest. And that's, that's really it. She's probably been one of the biggest influences on my campaign.
0: Hmm. Uh, I always ask the inverse just out of curiosity. Is there anyone you've met doing this that made your life worse? (laughs) Like, is there anyone you've met? You're like, fuck, I really wish I didn't do that. (laughs) Oh
1: yeah. There have been a few. Um, I don't want to name them though. Um, It's an interesting thing though. When you're, when you get a following like this, just, just saying someone was mean to you can get them to be like harassed so like even if i had an argument with someone i largely uh you know think well of people will start like being incredibly mean to them and rude to them just because they're defending me right and it's so it's something i do have to be careful about ever like naming you know my uh my opponents you know I- i'm cool with everyone trashing Ben Shapiro but if it's someone who's like in district who i just disagree with something uh, um, on, I guess you know, I, I don't want to send the army at them. I guess <laughs>
0: having uh, having been the recipient of the Josh Collins army once or twice in my life, I can fully relate.
1: Uh, <laughs> oh really? Oh
0: man! <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, even
1: just res- responding to me sometimes can get people mad. So. I'm
0: I'm a central shell and and proud of it and (laughs) your your following doesn't take kindly to my type. Uh, I will wrap up with this one then. What is uh? I I guess this is a very softball, easy question, but like, feel free to to glow or be humble or however you'd like to take this, but like. What's been just like your favorite part of this whole thing? Like you've had a very interesting life. It started off in some dark places. It's gone to some very bright places. God only knows Mm -hmm. like what the future is going to hold, how bright or dark, or whether or not there'll be a fucking planet here in ten years. So like, what's been sort of your favorite part of the journey? Like how you got to here in general?
1: Um, being underestimated and then proving people wrong. I guess I think that's the biggest thing. Um, I've been told multiple times like you're you have zero chance of winning like no one's going to donate like specifically no one's going to help you or donate like um and i've had people tell me they're going to do everything they can to stop the campaign um and it just hasn't worked And they you know told me i had no chance and that's it's very nice to um at least know that i whether i win or not i do have a chance we are going to do well regardless of whether we win or not we are going to um have some level of success and i I do think we are going to win so
0: well, I, I have a great deal of faith in you. Uh, it seems like from everywhere, at least on my timeline and my corners of the internet, you're fairly popular and a lot more popular than Danny Heck. Uh, so I, 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 I like your odds, kid, and I think it's going to go well. Uh, I wrap with every, everyone answering the same question, I guess, uh, which is that who do you want to kind of hear this episode and hear this podcast and hear your story?
1: Young people. I want young people who are, you know, doing regular regular-ass jobs, with no Harvard degree, any of that, like people who just can, <laughs> uh, they think they can't run for office. They think they don't have any power, but you really do. Um, and you know, if you just try put yourself out there and put a lot of effort and time into it. Like, you know, people will support you. Pe- people want people to run for office. We want young, other young, uh, progressive, working class people to run for office. And I think that's the most important thing to understand. It's just you just have to, you know, put a lot of effort into getting your voice out there.
0: Well then, young people, if you're out there listening, and I know you are because everybody listens to the Those People's Podcast, please be sure to check out Joshua Collins' campaign. Uh, Joshua Collins, where can people find you on the internet? Where should people go to learn more about you? Uh,
1: Joshua for Congress on Twitter and Instagram and uh, Joshua2020.com.
0: All right. Joshua, no, Joshua number four, Congress, everywhere on the internet that you want to find him. If you want to find me, it's at Mitch Gaines with the because I'm a little bit gay. Find me everywhere across the internet. Thanks again for doing this, man. I really was a pleasure. Like I said, a lot of people are looking forward to this, and uh, I, I've kept a pretty close eye, as close as I can keep, from the other side of the country on your campaign. And it's been fascinating so far. And I, I, I support you in everything that you're doing. And uh, although I may disagree, and I may be uh, quite, quite a, you know, nine steps to the right of you, or so, uh, I definitely think yours is a very important voice to have in politics these days. And uh, I think what you're doing is a really important thing. So I hope you inspire those young people who are definitely going to listen to this. Uh, and I, I hope you yourself are successful.
1: Yeah, thank you. appreciate you. Absolutely.
0: Thanks again to also everyone out there listening. Thanks for supporting the show. And until next time, he is Joshua Collins. I'm Mitch Gaines. And we're all those people. Take care. Those people are wrong. Most people are right. You don't have to want it so bad. just put it back don't have to be me housekeeping notes here after the episode if you enjoyed the episode please 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 rate and review the show wherever you listen really helps other people find the show and that's sort of essential to us being able to do a second season if you really love the episode or you just want to support the show you can also buy one of our political people t-shirts or some of our other merch available on our merch page at mitchgaines.com if you have feedback for the show I'm all ears my twitter dms are always open but you can also email me at mitchgaines at gmail.com prefer speaking to writing? Me too, that's why I started a podcast. You can leave us a voice message, if you prefer, at the link in the show notes here. Just note that your feedback, questions, and opinions may be used in a future episode. I want to give a special thanks to East Boston Public Library for allowing us to record several of our episodes on location there. Make sure you thank and hug your local librarian. Special thanks also to Phil Elam of the Justice Boys and Amy Bezunartea, hopefully I got that right, for our intro and our outro music, respectively. Both songs are fittingly titled Those People, and we'll post links in the show notes as to where you can find them. Lastly, and most especially perhaps, I want to give a special thank you to our executive producer, Kayla Shiland, without whom, and I mean this quite literally, none of this would be possible. I also want to give a final thanks to all those people who have been supporting this project from its earliest days, way before we released, including Irvin Bailey, Crystal Roloff, Nicole Hodnett, Shobo the God, and countless others that I'm missing here. I'm Mitch Gaines, and thank you as always for checking out this episode of Those People, a podcast with people about people.